A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Anoush Kellyan and I'm joined by my colleagues Stephen Bush and Alva Ray to talk about schools and MPs going back and then you ask us about the killing of George Floyd. School's back for summer, or at least after a fashion. So some schools in England have reopened today, which is Monday, uh, for the purpose of you not listening to this on, on the day it's come out for year one and year six, uh, as the government in England begins its kind of initial programming of reopening, while people who are shielding, because they're in an at-risk group, have been told that they can go outside and, and you know, rejoin the, the rest of the population. I don't know about anyone else, but the thing I'm finding particularly strange about covering this bit of the coronavirus response is... This feeling of watching something which is like, obviously a mistake, obviously not going to work out that well, but happening incredibly slowly. And so obviously that was kind of, that was basically true of a lot of the cuts from, from 2010 on, but I guess with an even more kind of surrealness, because it really doesn't feel like anyone actually believes any of this is necessarily that good an idea. Yeah, it's like the kind of like the return to Parliament. And I'm actually quite sympathetic to them. Basically, the weird thing is about Parliament returning is like the one when people talk about what's difficult, the one thing they do not say they need to come back is them all voting in the chamber. And yet that does that is basically the main thing that has come back is this kind of conga line that will stretch throughout the whole of Parliament, basically. And it is just slightly weird at the moment covering this kind of like slow burn crisis. And you should, do you have that kind of weird feeling as well? Yeah, yeah. It's I, I know what you mean. It's sort of like these decisions are being made, and of course, you know, they are knee jerk, reckless, and to some extent, you know, decisions that that have to be by their nature a bit of a gamble because no one can say for sure how they what they're going to result in. But as you say, they're sort of being unfolded at, at the snail's pace of a, a pandemic response requires. But we've, you know, you can see, you can see what's about to happen with the warnings from scientists on SAGE and also from a brilliant piece that one of our data journalists, Ben Walker, did about whether or not Britain is easing its lockdown too soon, comparing it with other countries as well. And when you do compare it to other countries, and, you know, I'm not saying I'm a scientific expert, but when you look at his data that he's been unpicking comparing britain to its neighbors and to and to other countries that have had a similar experience with the virus you do think that this this is being eased too soon 
and you do think that it's almost like schools and you know MPs to some extent are being used as guinea pigs or, or canaries in the coal mine to sort of see how it will pan out and then they'll they'll slow it down if they need to and actually when I think about other countries and actually speaking to people in other countries which I've done for pieces but also during lockdown socializing with friends who live abroad you get the impression actually that there's a feeling around the world that Britain hasn't really had a lockdown and I know that that's probably an incredibly insulting thing to say for the people whose livelihoods have been destroyed by the lockdown but actually we've had a very light touch one compared to a lot of other countries. When I was doing that piece about Cyprus, because of the number of Greek Cypriots who have died in the UK, which has been of concern to the Cypriot government, the way that they were speaking about it, they couldn't believe how much freedom we've had throughout this whole thing. And the loosening, you know, doesn't really look like much to them because because it looks like we've had a very loose, laissez-faire form of lockdown all along. And it begs the question, what is the point of even doing it and causing economic sort of devastation if you're not going to do it properly and if you're going to loosen it too early i can confirm from um the pan island of ireland zoom quizzes i've been doing with my extended family that that is a (laughs) perception that the uk hasn't had much of a lockdown even just in terms of technicalities that most countries have had a distance limit on how far you can travel around your home and that has been expanded or lifted mm. as time has progressed and that has never been the case here. I'm not really sure how, how much that makes a material difference except that it would have clarified issues mm. around you know, travelling from London to Durham, for example. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that is the perception. In terms of MPs returning to Westminster, which is the thing I'd like to speak to because it's the thing I've been thinking about most over the weekend. I think it's interesting what you say, this this idea that MPs along with schools, or school pupils and teachers are, are being treated a little bit like guinea pigs in the return. Because as you say, Stephen, the, the one thing that they sort of didn't need to bring back was the physical moving through the lobbies to vote. Like that has been plainly a terrible idea for years. You know, poor Tulip Sadiq, the MP for Hampstead and Kilburn had to delay her cesarean so that she could be wheeled through the voting lobbies in order to vote on a crucial Brexit vote last year. And then with this pandemic, we've seen that actually these things could be remedied very quickly when it's necessary for everyone and not just for a minority of MPs. But I mean, I accept your point that the behind the scenes interactions are sort of the making of politics and a a probably quite important aspect of, of scrutiny and democracy that we need to get back but it just strikes me as I think that the reason MPs are having to come back and, and all this sort of hybrid parliament that we've had for a while where some MPs have been in the chamber and everyone else can participate remotely via video screen and, and voting digitally I think that the thing that's driving it I, I, I don't know what the two of you think but I think that it's it's about this fear on the part of someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg and and the government more widely that they don't want MPs to look like hypocrites as more people are asked to take risks in the workplace and to go back to work they don't want MPs to look like they're being treated differently when like there's an obvious case that they're not being treated differently the advice is to work from home if you can 
and they can clearly as the past few months have demonstrated but I think that they they don't want to look like they're exceptions and the result is that all different sorts this is a piece I'm working on at the moment all different sorts of MPs and by extension their constituents are being disenfranchised by this like it isn't just MPs who are in the vulnerable category who are shielding but those in constituencies further from London are being asked to take on an additional risk of I mean, for Northern Irish MPs, the additional risk of air travel, unless they want to, you know, get several trains and a ferry in a journey that will take over half a day. MPs from the the far north of Scotland and so on are also being asked to take on a greater risk of travel. And then there are people, you know, lots of MPs' children haven't gone back to school. They have childcare complications. Basically, like people will get better representation at the moment if they are in a constituency nearer London and if their MP is a healthy, low-risk individual with no childcare responsibilities, which just isn't how our democracy should be working at the moment. Yeah, I, I, I think it's really interesting, that argument that Jacob Rees-Mogg and others in favour of, of doing away with the, with the hybrid parliament about leading by example and not looking like hypocrites I think that's quite disingenuous not least because the government already has looked like looked like looked hypocritical because of the Dominic Cummings affair and have has decided to take that political hit but also because I do think that there is that and I've I remember speaking to an MP right at the beginning of the hybrid parliament who was saying this is definitely not going to last because the tradition of voting in person and keeping parliament's sort of archaic traditions that's that's a very strong pull for a certain sort of section of MPs and that people won't want to do away with it that fast and that the urge to modernize is not as strong as the as the urge to keep those traditions going and obviously like you say that that runs uh, that sort of discriminates against certain MPs, particularly ones who want to modernise the workplace. So I think there's a feeling among those those who want to go back and those who don't that it's that the actual motivation is more one of preserving tradition than of looking in any certain way to the public, because not least because the government wants workplaces to return but in a way that is safe and practical and if parliament wanted to return in a safe and practical way like Stephen has said they wouldn't be contemplating voting in person in the way that they always have. So I guess I think it is a combination of both right because if we look at schools briefly then actually we have a fairly good idea that the risk of transmission among the under 11 is actually quite well they transmit but they they don't get very severely and they don't seem to carry a heavier viral load than adults so the the risk in terms of community transmission is fairly low in terms of what we know at the moment the problem is the logistical challenge is quite large because like what are the main reasons why it would be a very good thing for schools to return you have lots of children who haven't spoken to another child for some time you have children who are falling behind in their school, children who are falling behind in their socialisation. The problem is, is it's difficult to see how you can meaningfully replace any of those things and fix those issues if you have 15 people maximum to a class, often with a teacher they don't know, who can't do any of the useful safeguarding things where there is not all that much socialisation, let alone that much useful education going on while at the same time asking teachers to continue to try and provide distance learning for pupils at the same point right there are only so many hours in the day and there are there is a 
finite number of teachers. Well, okay, you can, you can hire, yeah, but there is present a finite number of teachers in the education system. But I think, you know, those memes that just seem to be going like wildfire around Facebook and WhatsApp of, you know, when Parliament looks like this, picture of them all crowding in, I'll send my kids to school, I think was part of why they've come back. But they are still social distancing in the chambers. The useful human interaction of politics will essentially still not be going on because of socially distancing. In an odd way, I think it's kind of a combination of being frightened to have a fight with the voters and a group of people who, as Anu says, do just want to protect the institution of of voting through the chambers and the traditions of parliament. But it just, it speaks to me to the ultimate weirdness of this, right, which isn't, we're trying to reopen to help the economy, but not just in this country, across Europe, the thing which caused people to start locking down was not Angela Merkel or Emmanuel Macron or Boris Johnson or Pedro Sanchez, for that matter, standing up and kind of doing a sad on TV and going, I'm afraid you have to lock down. It was the first clips from Italy that caused people to go, do you know what, maybe I won't go to that restaurant tonight. And you, you you see this if you kind of look at, yeah, whether it's the fork or you look at, which is kind of like the French, the main sort of French fine dining app. It's very good. You look at bookings in the fork, you look at bookings on booking.com, you look at an open table, they all start falling from March. And people were doing all of that stuff from March. And that is the big economic damage of, of lockdown is people yeah, reducing their consumption and that big demand shock. This idea that one, yeah, you can you can end your waiters your waiters furlough, but you can't force someone to go and eat, eat in their restaurant. And this idea that you can maintain demand if there is a second spike of cases in Westminster is just, yeah, this is what I mean about it, just feeling like an obviously bad idea. And I think there's also an important point around the way we don't know for certain what the impact was of MPs being in Westminster until so late in the day with no changes and no social distancing at the beginning of the pandemic. Like anecdotally, we're fairly sure. I mean, we can observe it from the fact that so many people in government got sick from the virus but we don't know for certain unless uh, you know I don't I don't know if either of you have seen data on this but I don't think that we have anything to prove categorically what the full impact was of MPs being in close proximity to each other and to their staff and then going back into their constituencies this idea that they could be super spreaders I think is a is a very viable one and it's strange that there's so much discussion around learning lessons from things. And I don't know if we have comprehensively learned the lessons of the way Westminster was being run before. I know that now they're social distancing and certain elements of that interaction and the way they'll be sitting in the chamber will be different. But this totally arbitrary demand you know to, to ask you know Claire Hannah in Northern Ireland to suddenly fly over so she can walk through the lobbies in person is like is absolutely and you know and then get you know Jamie Stone with his ill wife that he cares for and who's been shielding to you know leg it down to London so he can walk through the voting lobby and, and you know join that conga line I, I just think it's it's so arbitrary again then when you drill down into it there's that fear around hypocrisy and there's this clinging to tradition and maybe some sense that that genuine scrutiny does happen better when people can be in the commons as normal but since they won't be in the commons as normal what's the point 
It also doesn't bode well for the modernization of, of work in general, does it? Because all those things that you've just said are arbitrary have always been arbitrary. I know that there mm. is that benefit that you get from, from MPs being able to meet in person. Also, the benefit, you know, in terms of scrutinizing the government from MPs on both sides of the house being able to plot as well, which can have its downsides, but also its benefits too, in terms of keeping the government under pressure. I know that you get those benefits, but you're not, like you say, going to get them with a with a socially distanced parliament. But, you know, it, it was an opportunity to modernise in the same way that it's an opportunity to modernise in terms of, you know, a green recovery. Going into an office at an arbitrary address every day might not be necessary for your work and you might not have to drive there all the time. And, you know, you could stay at home and use up less of the resources that cause so much damage to our environment and also to our to our health and well-being as well so in terms of leading by example i i don't find it very encouraging i think i agree with all of that and i think that the other kind of weird problem is that it feels to me at least like a lot of the the trade-offs around fighting novel coronavirus are really difficult And then there's just been this kind of gradual sense over the last couple of weeks of the government kind of just retreating from things which are hard, right? The app, it turns out, is a bit difficult. So we're going to unlock now, even though the five tests have visibly just not been met. And yeah, like on those things, you just look at the... There is no fair-minded analysis that concludes that the five tests have been Mm. met. It's difficult because... We we know that there is certain damage from schools not being there. We know that it's difficult for children. We know it's difficult for the mental health of parents. But there are difficult logistical stuff around building openings. And while those are difficult, so we're not really going to engage with those. We're just going to um, do a bit of exhortation to teachers in the pages of the mail because that's a thing that we know how to do. Mm. We know that large chunks of the economy cannot function with social distancing in place even if they can legally reopen well we know that's difficult so let's just start turning off the furlough anyway it just kind of feels like in an odd way the the golden thread is basically just going well that's hard isn't it so why don't we just do something which is easy slash something we've always wanted to do and i think that is kind of one of the many things about the reopening that just feels so bleak and also just so kind of doomed from the get-go i also very anecdotally don't necessarily feel like There is much of a sense, even though this is what government has been saying. I don't think that there is on the ground much of a feeling that this is a a a tricky, dangerous moment and we have to tread gently. Purely anecdotally from being in parks, being on Hampstead Heath, speaking to friends and family. I think that there is an an increasing feeling that I mean, the the number of jokes I've heard from from people, even people I don't know very well, about how we're headed towards a second spike. You know, the, people talk about the socialising that they've been doing and about how difficult it is to socially distance and, and all the strange rules around it. And then there's this kind of absurd laughter when people joke about a second spike. I, yeah, I do think that there isn't much collective wariness around this or or people are simultaneously aware of the huge risks but also appreciating their new freedoms and much less clear about what is required of them than they were before I think yeah I think the reason for that is kind of understandable I spoke to someone for a piece in the magazine um, who runs the covid response at the Royal Free in North London who which was one of the first hospitals to take patients with COVID-19 and she was saying we didn't have a COVID 
pandemic plan before because we didn't know that there was going to be such thing as it. Now we do have one for a second spike and other people working in hospitals have said the same. So I think, and because the, one of the government's um, things that it always championed was, well, we managed not to let the NHS get overwhelmed by this. So I think people have taken confidence from that. But I also think it's false confidence because that's, I think I've probably said this before on here, but I think that's basically meaningless if you basically outsource the crisis to the care sector your health service did get overwhelmed. It just didn't happen in NHS hospitals. And also, you know, if you look at the, the footage and, and the stories of, of doctors from those hospitals during the peak, then, you know, what's your definition for overwhelmed? It sounds incredibly traumatic anyway. The fact is you didn't have the resources to look after all of those ill people and the rapid rapidity of the spread. And we only think that we were sort of you know, unscathed by it in the NHS because a lot of that stuff was and is happening in care homes. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. So we'll do something a bit different for this podcast because we've had a lot of different questions on the killing of George Floyd in the US and what it means in the UK and how we should be responding to it. So that's something that that we want to talk about collectively. I know that over the weekend I was thinking how tempting it is to look at the US and think, oh, you know, it's much worse there. We don't have guns here. We don't have police who behave that way here or we don't have presidents who tweet certain things like Donald Trump tweets here. But of course, that's only a very shallow reading of of, of what the um, police relationship with race is in this country. And actually, you know, from covering certain stories over the years and interviewing people who have been closer involved in, in that kind of dynamic, um, you know that actually we do have a very similar dynamic here. It's just it doesn't play out in the in quite the same way. And that's something that I, I, I've been speaking to some writers about whose opinions I really, um, I really respect. And there was a really striking tweet from someone who used to write for us quite a lot called Musa Akwonga. And he wrote on Twitter, when it comes to racism, England have won the World Cup of self-denial. Too many of them are holding their noses so tightly at the authoritarian stench coming from America that they forget to smell their own. And I think that's just the perfect way of looking at it. You know, we can sort of look with distaste at America and think, oh, how horrible that would never happen here. But it is happening here. I mean, the most recent example you you, you can see is the disproportionate number of BAME people being arrested for, for lockdown restriction breaking. Yeah, I think one of the the things I think is a bit of a trap for people in the UK is um, there's a a danger i think when people conflate the two of like setting the bar of the bar essentially becoming well are you better than the united states 
a bar so low than, you know, quite literally any of the European democracies can broadly clear it, right, which suggests it's not particularly useful as an accountability tool. And yeah, I think it's exactly right. And in an odd way, there's this kind of collective um, thing Then it's almost like it's, it's very easy once you've kind of gone, well, at least we're not X to ignore that. I mean, entirely unrelated. I remember a couple of years after Brexit um, going to, you know, as, as like the NS delegate, basically, to a conference in Poland where basically various people from sort of shattered left liberal parties from Central and Eastern Europe got together. And the number of people who would basically say to me in a kind of like, you know, in the same way that people in the United Kingdom go, well, at least we're not the States. They go, oh, well, you know, you see, the thing about Brexit is actually what people really objected to was immigration from Africa and Asia. But it, it kind of got uh, diffused onto, you know, onto the polls. And like, no, no, no. I think it was definitely that they did also oppose immigration from Central and Eastern Europe. Europe, But, you know, you, you, you do you. And I kind of think in a way, right, it does enter, it does have the same consequence here. I, I also think it's not helpful in the other direction, though, because I think that broadly, although there are many problems that kind of look the same and give off the same smell, I'm not convinced they actually have the same, the sort of same underlying cause, right? There's a very good piece by Gary Young on the uh, death rate of, due to COVID-19 in the forthcoming edition of the New States, from which I have read a draft of, and it's, you know, kind of typically good and thought-provoking as, as, as everything Gary writes is and he makes the sort of I think key point about the UK's death yeah the UK's death rate rate then it's, it's very hard to sustain the argument than it is biological because there is not a common genetic ancestry between people from the Indian subcontinent, subcontinent and people from Jamaica and people of Indian descent have significantly better outcomes health-wise than people from Pakistan or Kashmir, who they literally share a subcontinent, who there is a, a common genetic inheritance. And I think in the United Kingdom, the intersection of class into the way the police behave badly, I think sometimes about, you know, examples of, of, of poor police behaviour on my own estate, where the fact that I very clearly say the word T on the estate has clearly at times diffused situations with between the police and white people who live on the on the block which are just think visibly from the US that would 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 be the reverse right the uh, the appearance of a well spoken black man would if anything probably make the confrontation more deadly yeah kind of more more sort of catastrophic yeah and i think in a way one of the kind of problems of sort of kind of what you might think of as american cultural imperialism is then all of the sort of the kind of problems of various European democracies get kind of fed into this, like, are you better or worse than the US? Or here is a problem and exists in the US. Here are their solutions. Maybe you should adopt those. And they don't necessarily work. I think that's so interesting about the intersection of of class and race. I remember I interviewed um, Akala, the rapper for, for the magazine a while ago, and he told me a story about how he'd been pulled over two years before our interview by the police saying only gang members drive cars like this. Where did you get your car from and stuff like that? And one of the officers suddenly realised who he was. And I remember he told me that the whole mood changed and that he suddenly was seen as this public intellectual and, and he experienced for the first time what he described as class privilege. And they sort of left him alone and said how much they liked his music or whatever whatever happened after that. And I, I agree with you. I mean, not that it's something that I've seen firsthand, but I, I think that that's 
a sort of spe- specifically quite British response. Is that is that a fair thing to say? When I first came back from university, like at the end of first year, one of the things that lots of my friends understandably used to tease me about was not the, the two new voices I'd acquired, not only the new resting voice I'd required, but a new even posher voice for talking to people on the phone or talking to, to the police or talking to people in restaurants. And although, right, there, there is a... The intersection does work both ways, right? I, I I do think there is a difference between the lived experience of like Rishi Sunak and any other hyper successful moneyed white conservative MP you might care to name. But there is, I think, a difference in terms of how class and race interrelate in the UK. In that, I think most British politics is ultimately about class. I think most American politics is ultimately about race. I mean. There was a piece in, in the FT, which was a lot better than the headline, but the headline was like, yeah, these riots raise the spectre of a race-based US election. And it's just like, well, not like what the last one where the winning guy entered politics broadly as a birther and warning about, you know, rapists coming over the US-Mexican border. The ones before in which the candidate had to talk about his faith and kind of semi-continually had to be like, but don't worry. I think you're one of the nice ones to a large chunk of white America or indeed, you know, Clinton's successful election, which was, you know, part of the things that that they think helped them do it was him kind of ostentatiously kind of finding a, you know, a, a black thinkfluencer to, to condemn, right? It just is ever present in, 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 in US political culture, I think in a very different way. Yeah. I think that's, that's very perceptive. And certainly the thing that, I think a lot of people pick up from Rennie Edo Lodge's book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. I think the thing that a lot of people pick up from that book more than any other thing that they genuinely hadn't really thought about before is the way that we conceive of the working class wrong in the UK, that working class almost comes synonymously with white working class when that's not what the working class looks like in the UK anymore, that it's black people, brown people who are who are very, very likely to be in that group and to be exposed to high levels of economic precarity and so on. And then this is a very class-conscious society, and I think that they intersect in really interesting ways in a way that isn't necessarily applicable in the US. I think on the wider point around the the killing of George Floyd, in the UK, I think, because like I'm a white woman and, and there are loads of, of things in this area that I don't think I can speak to very helpfully. I think the thing I, I find most interesting or the thing I'm most able to reflect on is, is how this will make white people think about race in the UK maybe a bit differently. It's interesting that there's a whole cohort of people who are educated in, in race relations and racism in how to be anti-racist and so on, like very, very thoroughly and successfully on British university campuses and like not ex- not across the board but I think that there are there's a really deep understanding of those issues and an awareness of of your own privilege and so many things around that that are conveyed really really successfully to a whole host of university graduates and that in some ways trickle down and like coming from a quite an academic basis trickle down into the national conversation as well as like lots of other ways in which people from their lived experience understand racism and know how to conquer it. And I think that that is trickling through to people who haven't been exposed to those ideas. Like the, This is probably a really stupid example, but I follow this influencer on Instagram called Mrs. Hinch. 
but she's this sort of Essex woman who has a cleaning blog. It's a space completely divorced from political reality. But yesterday she did a post which I thought came across as genuinely very humble because she never really purports to be much of a thinker or a reader or anything like that. But she did quite a humble post about how she doesn't really know much about racism and has been sort of shocked by events over the past few days and has been, you know, thinking about how, you know, she's never had to think about this sort of thing before and how she would genuinely like to use her platform because she has several million followers. She's incredibly successful. It came, I mean, I find stuff like that really uncomfortable because you don't want to not say anything, but you also don't want to virtue signal or make it all about you. But I, I just thought like Mrs. Hinch is such an unpolitical person and has clearly been taught I mean I think literally by other things on Instagram and by the wider conversation that it's her responsibility to to educate herself on these things and I think that that maybe is a consensus that is is going more widely I don't know what either of you think on that one well yeah I think that's about right right because politics is downstream from culture this story somehow just is more shocking like, even though it basically has the same structure as, I mean, so it's it's so familiar. It's so familiar to a story we read about the US. And when I was putting together Morning Call, there was a dangerously long period of time in which I thought that these were protests that had spiraled out from a commemoration of the anniversary of a killing, because it just has all of the same hallmarks as one. But I think like, there's just something particularly shocking about the footage right then he kneels on his neck for so long and then he and I think this is reflected in the fact that you know all of the polling in the United States shows that overwhelming majorities think he ought to have been charged for murder or think that he should have been charged for something more severe isn't it it's quite a clarifying moment because it's obviously very bad and I think that if you were someone who was inclined to belittle or kind of just go oh you know US they're always up to some kind of crazy nonsense aren't they or the reverse right I think yeah the the reverse of that trap is I think there are some people who um who kind of have the reverse problem of seeing everything through a US lens and they kind of try and belittle what happens in the states because well that wouldn't happen here well that wouldn't happen in Europe Uh, I remember a couple of years ago when I kind of said something about you know look you know, it's like ultimately there is a problem of, of police officers in the in the US, you know, essentially killing at will without being held to account. And someone came in and they were very angry and then started making lots and lots of UK based counter arguments. It's like, well, I'm talking about a different country. And I think then in an odd way, that is one of the reasons why this had so much penetration, because it's so obviously not okay. I guess so much of how people come to think about this moment will inevitably be coloured by the outcome of the US presidential election. And I think then if Trump wins, people will kind of go like, oh, well, you know, that's a result of these protests rather than, you know, any other reason why the Democrats might lose in November. I think your first piece for us, Stephen, before you even started working at the New Statesman was about police and racism, or have I misremembered that? It was. It was about Mark Duggan. My juvenilia. I was just thinking of what you were saying about how you, when you were writing the story this morning for Morning Court, you almost felt like you were writing from a template that you'd written about before. And I just think it must be incredibly stressful and, and depressing having to write these kind of stories over and over again. 
whenever these stories happen, right, there's clearly somewhere in like the the vestiges of like, you know, the far right internet, a list of like, you know, black journalists you should preemptively write to about, you know, you know, it's kind of like, you know, dear Stephen Bush, have you considered that you are genetically inferior? And it's the thing where you like, you say and you're just, oh, this, yeah, like, this is just going to like render my inbox undid. You then get like these kind of like just snide and thoughtless messages from people you just think ought to know better, right? Like someone messaged me on Facebook asking why I had used the word riot, not the word uprising, and like what I thought about the political connotations of it. Inevitably, this person was white. And it's one of those things where it's just like, one, I'm sorry, actually, if you if you think that like the riots after Martin Luther King died were somehow illegitimate because they were riots, and if you kind of try and pretend that there's if you sort of impose a lack of spontaneity on these, they become more or less virtuous. Like, please shut up. I think there is a different level of militarization of the US police that makes it almost impossibly hard to compare with anywhere else. But in general, what the distinct policy challenge is, how do you balance people's understandable need to feel safe with public sector accountability right and you kind of notice this with like you know you're sort of most like public sector reform parent and patient choice blairite well when you go like okay well do you think there are any lessons here for the police we'll kind of just go no i can't think of any lessons there and i guess you know the kind of you know to do the sort of final thought i kind of think that the reason why i continue to be fairly pessimistic I think one of the many negative consequences of social media, right? So this one of the huge positive things about this story is that we can all see the footage and the footage makes it hard uh, for people to retreat to some of the usual excuse making about this specific case. And we do have a global solidarity while I, you are not safe, I'm not safe, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But it does, I think, also make it harder for people to see what specific problems are and therefore to come up with specific solutions in favor of kind of a sort of not particularly useful kind of broad brush approach. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.